0: but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com. Dot com slash sacred sacredtext today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com/sacredtext. Chapter 12: The Polyjuice Potion. They stepped off the stone staircase at the top and Professor McGonagall rapped on the door. It opened silently and they entered. Professor McGonagall told Harry to wait and left him there alone. I'm Vanessa
2: Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, before I make you tell me a story, I just want to remind everybody that credit cards expire. So sometimes your Patreon subscription expires and you don't even notice it. And so go to Harry Potter and the and click on support us on Patreon to make sure that you're getting all of your Patreon perks from us. Because if your credit card is expired, we don't know to send you your perks. Maybe you're missing a blooper reel. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story on the theme of guilt. What do you feel guilty about?
2: So, Vanessa, when I was, I think I must have been about seven or eight years old. I'm not sure my exact age, but what I do remember is that in gym class at my elementary school, the gym teacher had started asking us to do pull-ups as part of our fitness tests. And I was I was pretty good at sit-ups. I'm no longer good at sit-ups. I was used to be pretty good at sit-ups. And so I was fine in that department, but my pull-ups needed some work. And I was very disappointed that my house was not equipped with a pull-up bar for me to practice. And I was thinking to myself, if the only opportunity I have to practice pull-ups is at the fitness test, I don't stand a chance at improving at my pull-ups. So I was looking for creative solutions in the house. And one day in the evening, in the shower, I noticed the towel rack attached to the wall in the shower of my home.
1: Seems like a bad idea.
2: I can't remember the exact construction. It's not really what I was paying attention to at the time, (laughs) which we'll learn more about in a second. I don't think it was like bolted into the wall. I think it was like tiled in. I'm not sure the attachment mechanism Mm -hmm. for for this towel rack. But I started in the middle of my shower. I began to attempt to practice pull-ups on this towel rack. It didn't go well. What? Uh, I I was not I was not able to complete a pull-up. In my defense, it was not because of the weakness of my arms. Uh-huh. It was because of the weakness of the towel rack, which sure. immediately collapsed and clattered and caused a big and caused a big noise. As you might imagine, like my parents sitting downstairs or whatever, they heard a huge thud and clatter in the shower, so they ran upstairs and burst into the bathroom. And they were like, Matthew, what happened? And I looked at my parents and lied straight to their faces (laughs) and said, I was falling. And I grabbed the towel rack to save myself. And the towel rack broke. And my dad immediately like saw straight through my lie. And he's like, no, you didn't. You were hanging on it and you broke it. Right. So I. Tell the story because for, for two reasons, right? First of all, because I was caught, <laughs> right? And I knew it. And that's one sense of like guilt, right? Guilt is just a fact in one sense, right? The the fact that you are the one who did something means that you are guilty, that you have guilt, right? But the other thing is, I remember the story not because I broke the towel rack, but because I lied straight to my parents' faces. And I still remember that. And that comes with a feeling, of guiltiness. Like that and that lingers low these thirty some years later. Like just like and it's a joke now we laugh about it, right? But like the the boldness of of that lie, uh in order to kind of spare myself, the judgment for what was a really bad decision, <laughs> right? That sticks with me. So one of the things I'm interested in thinking about is how we understand guilt both as a fact and a feeling. Right? Mm-hmm. Like the fact of guilt is one thing. The feeling of guilt is a different thing. And I I wonder why why they're paired, if they ought to be paired. Sometimes the fact of our guilt, maybe we should feel different things about it. Like maybe if we are if we are defying an unjust law, then we might feel defiant or triumphant, right? Or in a case like this, we might feel ashamed or remorseful, right? But, but the idea that guilt itself is a feeling and that it ties so closely to the fact of guilt is interesting to me and just something I think might be worth exploring.
1: Matt? I love that story for many reasons, (laughs) including the dual definition of guilt, right? Guilt in terms of a crime, whether that crime is hanging on a towel rack or something more severe Mm -hmm. and how the feeling of guilt can often have nothing to do with whether or not you've committed something that is against the rules. Exactly. And the things that I feel guilty about are rarely when I break the rules. It's... It's when I don't call someone back in a timely manner, right? There's no law saying right. that I have to call a friend back. And yet that is the thing that weighs on me. Right. And yet when I when I roll through a stop sign, which of course I never do because that's dangerous, I'm not like racked with guilt after that.
2: Yeah. Or like when, as I said before, and as we see in this chapter, like when you defy a rule that needs to be defied, like Hermione totally. is defying some rules. She doesn't feel guilty, not because she no. didn't break the rule, but but because she doesn't feel guilty about it, right? It's yeah. interesting because etymologically,
1: <gasps> yes,
2: guilt, guilt comes from the old English and it just meant crime. The uh, fact that yeah. the crime was it. And somehow it has become interiorized and, and made into an emotional state for us. And I think, yeah, that's something to think about. So Vanessa, it's time for the, our 30 second recap. And I believe it's your turn to go first. Okay. Three, two, one, go.
1: So, Harry goes to Dumbledore's office, Fox transforms, and Harry's like, oh my god, I didn't make that bird catch on fire. And Dumbledore's like, I know, and Hagrid comes in and is like, Harry didn't commit any crimes, and Dumbledore's like, I know, do you have anything to tell me, Harry? And Harry goes, nope, and Dumbledore says, okay, dismissed. And they take the polyjuice potion, and Hermione turns into a cat, and they find out that Draco's a jerk, but he is not the heir of Slytherin, and it's Christmas holiday, and Mrs. Weasley sends thought, I spent a lot of time on the first page. That's okay. Okay, Matt, can you do the not first two pages of the chapter?
2: I, I can't overthink it. I just got to go. Okay, on your that's, market set, that's go. That's the honest answer. So he's in Dumbledore's office, and he feels nervous about being Slytherin. He puts on the sorting hat and doesn't get a lot of reassurance. And then Dumbledore comes in, and uh, and the, oh, the, the bird catches on fire. And Hagrid's like, Harry didn't do anything. And Dumbledore agrees, but Harry doesn't want to say anything more. And it's Christmas, and they exchange gifts. And the potion is ready, and they have a big feast. And Crab and Goyle eat chocolate cakes laced with drugs that make them pass out. Uh, and they steal the shoes, and they go turn into other creatures, uh, other people, into crab and Goyle. And they go down the The dungeon and find out Malfoy is not the heir of Slytherin and Hermione's a cat. A cat person.
1: (laughs) Like, like the short story. Matt, we have to talk about, I think, like the one real horrible crime that happens in this chapter, which is the drugging of Crab and Goyle. The drugging and then like stealing DNA off of their bodies. And I know that we've talked a lot about like justifying things for the greater good, and the stakes are super high. And Crab and Goyle are like bad dudes, even though they're 12, so I don't know how comfortable I am, like, thinking of them as bad dudes. But they must wake up from this experience as traumatized. They wake up in a closet, having been drugged and their shoes taken off of them. And I don't feel like the trio takes this very seriously. And nor do I think that the book takes it seriously. So I guess what I'm saying is that this is like a crime guilt and not the feeling guilt moment. Yeah. And this is a moment in which I feel like the two should be conflated. Like you crimed and you should feel guilty.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's also this idea of like a, maybe a necessary guilt, right? Like that sometimes there are situations where we actually, the only options we have are wrong things. And we have to choose which is the wrong we're willing to put up with and in that case like the feeling of guilt is necessary to remind you that even though you did the thing you had to do you still hurt somebody in the process and that that counts right i mean i don't know i don't know how they wake up you know everyone responds to to things differently and so it's hard to know whether they were traumatized by this or not right i mean as so often happens in these novels like it's played for laughs right like these these things that if written one way or read one way or experienced yourself could be incredibly traumatizing. The novel sets it up to be kind of played for laughs. And thinking through this situation, through the theme of guilt, as you did, Vanessa, actually helps bring Crab and Goyle's experience into better relief and um, and helps us pay attention to it. So that's, I think it's important. Yeah. Because it's not one of those situations like we were talking about before where like I'm defying a rule for the greater good and therefore I'm, I'm proud and defiant, right? Like it's They're just indifferent to Crab and Goyle, and you prefer they would be like. I feel kind of bad for him, but totally.
1: And it's interesting, right? Because the impact on Crab and Goyle would be the same, and I feel like there's a lot of really interesting conversations, you know, happening over the last twenty years about intent versus impact, and that what matters is the impact, not the intent. Yep. And while I think that that is largely true and certainly something that we should always be keeping in mind regardless of our intentions, I think that often our intentions change the way that we behave enough that the impact is slightly different. And so I don't know, maybe they would have just been like dragged more gently into the closet if the (laughs) the trio was like, sorry, as they did it. Or at least the trio would would next time think really carefully about doing this kind of thing? I don't know. It It just makes me really uncomfortable, the lack of them feeling guilty.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I think it's to me that the, the distinction between intent and impact is an important one. But for me, it's the feeling that's at stake is not the intent beforehand. It's the feeling afterward, right? Like whether or not there's remorse, right? Because I think you could reasonably say, especially from Hermione's perspective— the stakes are people like me die or we figure out how to steal some hairs from two of the meanest kids at the school. Right. Right. And so like I, I intend to steal those hairs and the impact will be these two might be traumatized. I will feel some remorse that I had to do that, that that was the only option available to me. What we want is the feeling afterwards of guilt. Right. Like and like, not to say like, oh, the intent was not to harm them or to harm them less. No, actually, we intended to do what was necessary, and the impact on your lives, on the lives of Crab and Goyle, may have been difficult or harmful, and we feel bad about that. It's the, the point here is that they didn't feel they didn't feel guilt, even though they have guilt. If that if that makes sense, but right? But why
1: does that matter? Why do we want people to feel
2: guilty? What is our hope? So, I think this is super important morally because so then they can't transform this into a virtue. It's an it's a necessary but not a virtuous act. Like I think that we need to, I think we need to keep that distinction alive. Otherwise, if we start describing necessary things as virtuous, then we risk like valorizing behaviors that we would not want to valorize, right? And valorization is different than justifying, right? Like he's like, I this is a necessary action. I'm justified in taking it. That doesn't mean it's the kind of action that I want to say is great activity or that we should universalize that other people should look up to. Maybe we can agree like we had to do it, but there's something about recognizing the humanity, even of those that, that we harm, that requires us to say like, when I harm you, I wish I didn't have to harm you. I do have to, and we can agree that I do have to, but it's a tragedy that I have to. And something about preserving that sense of tragedy preserving that sense of remorse is also about preserving the the humanity and the dignity of those against whom we're, we're struggling. And yeah, and I think that's that's really at stake in these books, right? In the same way that Harry stuns instead of kills when he's fighting the Death Eaters, right? There's something that he does want to preserve in the other about their, their humanity or their, their dignity, even when he's struggling against them. And I think refusing to valorize harmful actions, even if we can justify them, is part of that. And that means feeling remorse when or feeling guilt when we take those actions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining a dinner party 20 years in the future where, you know, the the potters, Ginny and Harry and the... Weasley is Ron and Hermione, although I would really like to think that Ginny and Hermione both kept their maiden names, but we can talk about that another time. But when when those families get together and they're telling funny stories, right, you want maybe the fact that Hermione turned into a cat to be one of the funny stories that they tell around the dinner table, but you don't want them laughing about, and then we drugged these two guys and passing that story on to their kids in that way, Right. right? And if they have that feeling of guilt, then- there's a little bit of shame. So they don't tell that part of the story or they tell that part of the story and teach their children a lesson of necessary evil. But yeah, without the guilt, this is a really funny story in 20 years. And I don't want the story to ever be funny. Right. Can I tell you a moment in the chapter that I found very funny, but that I don't think is meant as comedy and, and that I think will get interesting about guilt, which is when Draco was like, let me tell you this really funny article I read in the paper. At the age of twelve,
2: yeah, <laughs> about
1: about some bureaucratic thing that happened in the Ministry of Magic. I'm like, what, who is this child? Is he already investing in stocks at the age of twelve? And the article that Draco is quoting is about how, you know, Arthur was fined 50 pounds because 50 galleons because he bewitched the Fort Anglia. But then Draco tells us that also Arthur, you know, came to raid the Malfoy house. And there's this very strange thing where Arthur is being sort of publicly ridiculed for his You know, guilt, whereas Lucius Malfoy is currently getting away with his guilt, but because Ron is now going to be able to tell Arthur where to look, right? Like this guilt and who gets outed for what they're guilty for, right? The the court of public opinion, I guess, is what I'm saying, right? That there's literal guilt and then there's also what gets written about in the paper and how people are perceived,
2: yeah. And and I think in each of these cases, both Lucius and Arthur, right, there's this distinction between having guilt and feeling guilt. Like both of them have guilt. Lucius does have the dark artifacts, but feels no guilt about it. Right. And Arthur did conjure enchantments upon the Fort Anglia, but feels no guilt about it. Right.
1: How do you I bet that Molly has made him feel pretty guilty about it.
2: I, I think, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Does he feel guilty? Because he still tries to get away with stuff. He feels bad that he got caught, which is different than feeling guilt, right? Like he's uncomfortable because Molly is mad at him. <laughs> yeah, maybe he feels guilty. I don't know. I mean, he keeps doing this stuff. I it's it just sure. it the shadow of this Ford Anglia looms over these chapters. And in this chapter in particular, because when Molly sends the sweater to Harry, like the one time I think this word is used in the chapter, he feels a fresh surge of guilt. And it's in two directions, right? And this is a feeling. It says he feels a fresh surge of guilt, but he feels it because he knows what he did to Molly and Arthur by flying the f- car to Hogwarts. And he also knows that they are risking getting expelled in a couple hours again. And and so both those things, both those facts summon the feeling in him. And, and it was interesting that the only time that this word is used in this chapter, it was more about the feeling. But the, Harry has the feeling because he has to acknowledge that He did do these things to these people who are so kind and and good to him. And so the remorse comes pretty, pretty quickly and surges, I guess.
1: Something else that occurred to me, and I think it's just because I went to high school in a similar dynamic, is the way that kids take on the battles and crimes of their parents. Right. Like. Lucius and Arthur are having a fight, right? Arthur is raiding Lucius's house for dark objects. And Ron is raiding the Slytherin common room to try to get information from Draco at the same time. And I went to high school with uh, Michael Milken's daughter, who Michael Milken was the inventor of the junk bond and was in prison when I was in high school with his daughter. And the the son of the man who turned on Milken and is the reason that Milken served so much time also went to high school with us. And the two of them would sometimes get into these fights, obviously just, you know, echoing their parents' fights, but there was like a real sense in their grade of like people taking Milken's side and Winnick's side. And right, like hmm. no way in the ninth grade are they like, your father was just as implicated in the junk bond scheme as my father was, right? But this just loyalty to people and how we're willing to take on the guilt of others and justify the guilt of others if we love them and are loyal to them is very interesting to me. Draco's like, yeah, we have dark objects and has like no shame about it.
2: I mean, that's super interesting to me for super nerdy reasons. There's this kind of, Fundamental theological problem in Christianity, which is one of the teachings of a lot of traditional Christian theology is that somehow Jesus, this man Jesus, takes upon the guilt of everybody else, yeah. right? And that just doesn't make sense. I can't—if you did it, it's not mine, right. right? Like, that's one of the things about guilt, is that the fact of guilt belongs to the one who did it, and that that facticity can't be denied or transferred, right? But the way you described just like, how we take on the guilt of people we love— Right. How it doesn't erase the fact that the other's guilt, but there's a way in which we take up their battles or act on behalf of them because we love them. That's. Yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it's a very nerdy reason, but that's a really interesting way to frame it, especially because, you know, in my own kind of theology of love, like love is the thing that makes all these things possible. And so the way you phrase it, especially is super illuminative. Maybe I'll write a book of theology about guilt next <laughs> and I'll have to give you like credits in the. In the beginning for your great idea.
1: Yeah, obviously.
2: Well, I have another guilt situation from this chapter I'd like Please. to speak about, Vanessa. Because we've we've mostly been focusing on issues where the fact exists, but the feeling doesn't. Yeah. And I think at the beginning of this chapter, we have a situation where the feeling exists, but the fact doesn't. Yeah, right? with Harry. Harry, right. Harry feels guilty because he thinks maybe he ought to have been placed in Slytherin. I mean, there's no way that this makes sense, right? Because it wasn't his responsibility to sort. It was the hat's responsibility. And even if the hat was wrong, it's not his fault. It's not his guilt. And the hat wasn't wrong. We also know, right? But he still feels guilty. He feels because he is a parcel of mouth, because he can hear the things in the walls, because all this stuff is happening. And also because of all the social sort of everyone's suspicious of him and thinks that he is the heir of Slytherin, even though he knows he's not or maybe hopes he's not, right? Like he feels a guilt where the fact isn't there. And so that's just another way for us to think about like all the other ways, especially social pressure, leads to people feeling guilty when they've done nothing wrong, feeling remorse or shame when they have no cause to.
1: Oh my God. And it is the thing that if I could erase from the human condition, it would be that, right? Like people feeling guilty and ashamed of thoughts that they have or right of desires that they have or who they love right like this is the thing that i'm like this is just torture that we have inflicted upon ourselves for completely arbitrary reasons of you know oppression and so so people can maintain power and it is just so acutely felt in this moment, and I think that this gets back to this like structural flaw of the houses, right? There shouldn't be a bad house, where for whatever reason, there is a group of kids who are like, yeah, we're the bad house, but everybody else is like, no, you're the evil house. Like this is is not (laughs) something that should be so widely accepted. And I think that Dumbledore has a real missed opportunity here. The fact that he lets Harry walk out of this office so quickly, and obviously there's something going on. Hagrid comes in as a representative of the school saying, obviously everybody thinks that Harry is probably the one who petrified, you know, Colin Creevey and Nick, right? Because otherwise Hagrid wouldn't come in and defend him. And Dumbledore makes clear that he believes Harry, that Harry is not actually guilty of this crime but he doesn't ask Harry if he feels guilty or if he's okay or if he just witnessed something really troubling or right like there's just like no conversation that happens about this Dumbledore's like oh 12 year old doesn't want to talk about it okay bye it's so weird
2: I'm less convinced that that's the way the conversation went than than you are because okay. what we have are ellipses at the end of Harry's comment and I think I I don't know I mean maybe I'm too too sympathetic or generous towards Dumbledore. The way I read it was that that there was more to this conversation. He didn't just say bye. That there's something unstated and unwritten about how the conversation concluded. And my sense was that Dumbledore was trying to coax something out of him, but wasn't able to, because what Rowling really wanted to get us to in that moment is Harry didn't do it because he's afraid he is guilty, right? He's afraid to tell Dumbledore, I can speak Parseltongue. He's afraid to tell Dumbledore I can hear the voice on the walls because he thinks, Dumbledore believes me now, but if I tell him this, he's going to, like everybody else, think that that I'm the heiress of too. And so it feels to me like Rowling wraps up the scene not because Dumbledore didn't have any more to say, but because she's gotten across the point she wanted to get across that Harry's suspicion of himself makes him wonder whether Dumbledore can trust him.
1: And you don't think that Dumbledore should say, Harry... Are you okay?
2: Uh, I think, yeah, maybe he should, right? And maybe he did. I don't know. He probably didn't. But I think something about just like the, yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to say, especially not knowing how the conversation ended. Something else was said, right? Uh, It's hard for me to fault Dumbledore too much, I guess. That may be being too generous. But something about him just kind of saying really calmly in his very calm disposition to Hagrid, relax. Harry's not in trouble, right? Was kind of saying to Harry, you're okay, Harry. I just want to hear what's going on with you, right? right. He probably could have been or ought to have been more explicit about that. But to me, the problem here is not that Dumbledore wasn't gentle enough or open enough or trusting enough. It's that Harry's really struggling and he's worried that the last ally he has in the school will also, not the last ally he has in school, he's got Hermione and Ron, of course, but you know, at, before this moment, it seems like even McGonagall no longer trusts Harry, right? She seems like she's like, I, I don't know what I can do for you. I, I don't know what this means. I just know you got to talk to Dumbledore. He's not sure that the teachers are on his side anymore, at least the teachers he trusts. Yeah, I, I don't know. Just the way I read it is like Harry's has deep suspicions about himself, right? Yeah. Which is to your previous point about like how poisonous self-guilt can be right? Like there is no crime here. There is no fact of guilt, but the feeling of guilt has made Harry doubt who he was for the first time since he got free of the Dursleys, (laughs) right? He found himself and he gets free of the Dursleys in book one. He knows where he belongs. And then suddenly like now he's like, who am I? And maybe these people who I thought were my people don't know who I really am. It just seems like it's really poisoning him in a way that prevents him from reaching out for support
1: i mean the true hero of this scene to me is hagrid right hagrid busting in and like he doesn't really know what's going on and without any context he is just like i am going to defend harry and it's exactly the kind of support that he's not gonna get later in this book in the parallelism of that
0: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
3: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
0: until you tried it on same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So, whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice
4: things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods
1: Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, do you find it interesting at all that Hermione is sort of like the mastermind behind this plan of the polyjuice potion and the stealing of the, you know, ingredients from Snape and, you know, the drugging <laughs> of Crabbe and Goyle? And then, like she sort of gets this punishment of getting turned into a cat. Do you think that Rowling is trying to make an argument about guilt or about karma, about comeuppance?
2: Well, I think you can go two ways. I think you can go two ways. Right on the one hand, you could say that Hermione, who is the architect of this this plan, uh, who's the one who has the idea about drugging crab and Goyle, is the one who suffers most. So maybe there's a karma thing there. Or you could say they all ought also to have drugged. Millicent Bulstrode, because then they would have made sure to get the right hair and she wouldn't have been turned into a cat. So it becomes tricky when you try to read too much meaning into these these punishments. But however, I'm guessing she felt at least some regret, (laughs) if not some remorse in the girl's lavatory.
1: It's now time for Havruta, and the question that I have for you this week is about a moment with Madame Pomfrey. So Harry and Ron are trying to coax Hermione out of the bathroom as Moaning Myrtle laughs, and they're like, look, yes, you got turned into a cat person lady, but we'll take you to Madame Pomfrey and everything will be fine. And then Harry makes a comment that Madame Pomfrey doesn't tell that she's discreet and that you know, she'll take care of it without really reporting on Hermione. And part of me loves Madame Pomfrey for this. Part of me is like, absolutely, A, HIPAA and privacy. B, kids are more likely to come to you with problems, right, when they're scared, if you're not going to get them in trouble, especially for health things. And the other part of me is like, this is a minor. Her parents should maybe know that she got turned into a cat person, I maybe the administration should know that like something's wrong. I don't know, maybe adults should be alerted. And so I my question is what do we think of the fact that Madam Pomfrey is as discreet as she is? And I think that in the case of Madam Pomfrey, I my instinct is to come down on her side that she has been doing this for a long time and that she cares so much about the welfare of individual students that she says to herself, like they are going to be safest if I never tell anyone. And I think that there is real wisdom in that. I also think that often then young people can't get the support that they need. Anyway, I think that Madame Pomfrey is probably doing the best thing in a not ideal situation. But I'm wondering what you think of the fact that she has this reputation of keeping secrets about you know, dragon bites that Ron gets and Hermione being turned into a cat person?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, because I, at first glance, I agree with you, which is that, you know, those who provide healthcare to folks who engage in risky behaviors, which is like basically defines at least the Gryffindor house of Hogwarts, <laughs> right? Like those who provide healthcare to folks who engage in risky behaviors, like ought not to shame people for engaging in those behaviors if they actually want to help people heal. From the results of those behaviors, right? And so, at first glance, when you—I mean, when you first stated your question—I was like, "Yeah, I think I'm with Ben and Pomfrey." But then you reminded me that they're minors, right? Yeah. And like, oh, that oh, we we ought to do something about that, or at least someone ought to know. And also, if I understand, in the kind of triage moment, you have to make people comfortable coming to you for help. They have to fear their injury more than getting in trouble, right? And so I understand her not wanting to to say anything. But then also that makes me think, like, then how do you how do you change behaviors? How do you promote less risky behavior? I mean, one answer is it's not Madame Pomfrey's job to reduce risky behaviors. It's somebody else's. Right. But it also makes me wonder, again, like what's going on behind the scenes? Like maybe maybe Madame Pomfrey does report these things to Dumbledore and Dumbledore uses his discretion, and decides when to reach out to parents Maybe that's why Dumbledore knows something's going on with with the kids because he knows what's going on in the hospital wing. So maybe there's a, maybe there is a system in place which is trying to balance the the need to have students come for care instead of stay away for fear of discipline, while also like trying to promote safety whenever possible. But you're right; it's not in the page, and it's not as how the students understand things to be. And this is not new. Right? Dragon bites in the last book, and becoming a cat, like this is all stuff that somebody should probably know about because presumably there are other ways that a polyjuice potion could go wrong that might be much more harmful to to Hermione and that, you know, they should pay attention to.
1: I mean, when I was a a proctor living in the freshman dorms, that a lot of the students were really concerned about seeking mental health support. Hmm. Because if you said certain words to mental health professionals at Harvard, Red flags did get raised. Yeah. And I do think that at some point the healthcare professionals had really good instincts of if you are having severe anxiety and depression, you shouldn't be in school at this competitive place that doesn't have the supports necessary to really take care of you in this moment of acute crisis. But what the students experienced that as was getting kicked out of school for mental health problems. Right. And so they wouldn't be honest with the mental health professionals and it it was just, it was so painful to watch students be in so much pain and not feel comfortable telling anybody about the pain that they were in for fear of what they saw as repercussions. And yeah. that often really were repercussions, right? You would have to apply yeah. to, to show that you're well enough to get back in. Some of the kids wouldn't really have anywhere to go if you get kicked off campus and you don't want to go home to your parents. Where do yeah. you go as a 19-year-old whose full-time job is being a student? And so I feel like, you know, for not even for quite minors, just for young people, like, these are really high-stakes questions. But yeah. I also, you know, the students would come to me and say, I don't want to go to mental health services. And it was like, well, I don't know what else to say to you because you are in severe anguish. Yeah. And, like, I'm concerned about you. Yeah. So th- I that's why... I'm so supportive of Madame Pomfrey, like staying quiet on it. But also I I just really feel for the psychiatrists, you know, who I worked with at Harvard, who were like, but this is not the safe place for you right now.
2: That's interesting because I was thinking about my own experience as a proctor here, which is a few years earlier than you, Vanessa. And for us, this conversation was around alcohol abuse. Yeah. There had been some deaths from alcohol poisoning and so forth. And so they wanted folks to never not... Report someone who was in danger of alcohol yeah. poisoning, and so they they would just the you know healthcare would they would not punish folks who got help for one of their friends. Yeah, there
1: was immunity. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah. yeah, but I hadn't thought about it with respect to like the kind of hidden repercussions, which are meant as acts of care. Yeah, in in mental yep. health situations, your example uh, really has me thinking about how like even the the forms of care we offer and the the ways we try to protect one another can feel like punishment to the folks we're caring for, and even whether or not we use the language of punishment, have real repercussions that people want to avoid. How do we reframe our practices and language of care so that it feels like it is caring? I mean, it can right. still be consequential, but that it's also caring. I think that's the, I think that's the thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, because Madame Pomfrey's demeanor is so harsh. In the hospital, right? She's very matter she's of She's very matter of fact. And she doesn't want... And, and there's an authority there, right? Like, even Dumbledore's got to get out if it's not the totally. right thing for the kid. And and I think that is actually promotes a sense of care. Like, I think all the students feel like, oh, she has our well-being as her highest priority, even above deference to one of the greatest wizards of all time. <laughs> right?
1: Like <laughs> Right. And I love it about her. Yeah.
2: So even though her demeaning is not, like, necessarily soft and gentle and caring, like she communicates to every one of these children, your care, your well-being is my top priority.
1: Right. I mean, so it sounds like the answer that you're offering is that through trust and, you know, intimate relationship, that is how you make, you know, consequences at times feel more like care. And I think that that was part of the problem. And that's part of the problem in healthcare in general in the United States is like, You feel like you're fighting a system rather than dealing with an individual who cares about your health and well-being. And so Madame Pomfrey has an edge here in that it's one person, right? It's not dealing with, you know, Kaiser. It's dealing (laughs) with Madame Pomfrey.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. And so I think by by making it so personal and by building relationships, that seems to be one way. I mean, my instinct is like there has to be like a deep destigmatizing yes. of health problems uh, of all varieties right like we all have bodies we all engage in risky behaviors yep. we all get get into cars every day yep. right and so i i think that there just has to be some destigmatizing about that i think that there has to be right like this is such a complex problem which is part of the the problem like there needs to be a better social safety net for people who need mental health care and don't have somewhere to go, right? Like this just, our society is built for a body that doesn't exist. Our society is built for a body that is mentally and physically in a certain space at all times, minus five sick days a year. And that's all it's built for. And it's just built, we need to rethink the world to represent bodies as they actually exist.
2: Yeah, I think all that's right. I, th- I think the thing with Madame Pomfrey, though, I, I, it may have less to do with the fact that she's a single person—that's the kind of face for care at Hogwarts—in that her, it's like I think it's just like her absolute clarity, and and she achieves yeah. that clarity through her kind of abrupt demeanor, right? But yeah. that the the tone is actually not what counts to the kids. It's it's not like it's not like she's very gentle and soft and like oh we're going to take care of you here. Actually, it may work, but what's actually most important, she's like, it is always absolutely clear to every child. Like, it doesn't matter, come hell or high water, my number one task is to make sure you are well. And I also wonder, just even in those situations of, like, mental mental wellness that you were talking about and mental health, like, if what's needed is just, like, a really clear and direct, like, this is dangerous, and I care about your well-being, and that means we have to take action, right? And it doesn't matter who comes and says what, but my job is to protect you, and that's what I'm going to do, right? And... Which is kind right. of the way, like I feel like Madame Pomfrey would would deal with that kind of situation. Is like you know, the, the president of Harvard could come in here and say that you're staying at school, or whatever. It doesn't matter. I say you need this protection, and you're going to get it, and I'm going to make sure you get it. Right? Like there's something about that just makes you feel like, oh, I think I think we could make one. Maybe not always. I'm not. That's not to say that the consequences aren't actually still real and and significant. But there is something about the clarity of the the caretaker's priority that Madame Pomfrey has and that is maybe hiding behind or operating under this claim of the students that she doesn't ask any questions, right? It's because the the reasons are less important than the solutions. Thanks, Vanessa, for leading us in Havruta. And also for like, I didn't think I had an answer to my question, but you found one for me. And that was a good answer. So thank you.
1: It was the answer that you said.
2: Your version of my answer was how it became good.
1: You're welcome. This week's voicemail is from Eustace.
3: Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Justus calling from Germany. Um, I just listened to your episode about frustration in which you mentioned uh, Ron's detention of uh, cleaning trophies with Filch. Um, and it made me think of something because I'm also a teacher and at my school uh, we explicitly don't do cleaning or helping the janitor or groundskeeper with anything as detentions for students. Um, there, there, there are detentions and... Students do also help with cleaning the school, like there's a yard cleaning a and everything, but uh, we don't set them cleaning up with the cleaners uh, or with the uh, janitor as a detention. The idea behind that being that these people are doing work and that work is valuable. And if we now send students and it's a punishment for these students to do that work, this devalues the work that these people are doing um and so i would like to offer a blessing to filch and all maintenance professionals who are doing work that other people might perceive as punishment if they had to do it themselves love all the work you're doing thanks for everything
2: bye thank you eustace i am so grateful for this voicemail because i agree with you totally all work is dignified and we should dignify all work and you know in it's interesting because you speak about German schools. My nephews are being raised in Japan and they go to Japanese schools. And in Japan, like cleaning the school is the children's responsibility. There are janitorial staff. Their Their job is to direct the children in cleaning the school, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. like part of being a person means cleaning up and cleaning up after yourself. And it's, it's important and actually is uh, dignified work, right? And so... One of the things I love about Japanese schools is that children prepare meals and serve each other. Children clean up school together. Uh, And it's all partnered with adults who are, you know, there are lunch ladies who help these children do this thing. And there are janitorial staff who help children do this thing. But it's a shared responsibility. And I feel like students feel more responsibility for their environment because of that. And at the very least, as you say, Eustace, don't end up denigrating those tasks as menial or as disciplinary in any sense, it's it's just our work and and worth doing. Yeah. So I, yeah, I I'm really grateful for this this voicemail and for your reminder.
1: Eustace, I loved everything about this voicemail. Matt, I love everything about your response. It always confuses me when someone thinks that they're above cleaning up after themselves. I'm like, how?
2: It is now time for us to remember the loved and lost of our Harry Potter and the Sacred Text community. Regina Castro, beloved mother and sister. Nassim and Wasim Abdin, brothers, loving uncles, artists, book lovers, and teachers. William Hinckley a beloved chaplain, a father, and widower. Nathan Cotter, 16, a brother and the life of the party. Nathan, 34, a brother, husband, and posthumous papa to twin boys. George Herbert Haynes, 93, dad, granddad, and mechanic. Let light perpetual shine upon them.
1: Well, Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings.
2: Vanessa, this week, I would like to bless Dumbledore. I know we might not agree on this blessing. I really enjoyed that, that conversation between Dumbledore and Harry. I thought that he was gentle and maybe too gentle uh, or maybe not gentle enough. I don't know. But there's, there's something about his approach to Harry, and Harry, I know, is in such internal distress. And I feel like Dumbledore can sense that distress, and he's trying to coax it out of Harry without causing him more distress. And he doesn't succeed here, so maybe he's wrong, but at least i want to bless the intention and bless the instinct in, in Dumbledore, even if the execution is imperfect. Who are you blessing this week? No,
1: I'm too hard on him. I appreciate your blessing, Matt. I am blessing Bill. Bill is working for Gringotts in Egypt and his whole family is invited to visit him for Christmas and none of the siblings opt to go and instead they stick around Hogwarts for Christmas, they would rather stay at school than go visit their brother in Egypt. And I am the child in my family who has gone away, and I just got back from visiting my family in California, and I, something I am very grateful for is that whenever I come to visit, my family just like, I feel bad, but like my brothers, everyone just drops everything, and my visiting becomes like the number one priority. And I just think it would make me so sad if no one wanted to come visit me. And I feel really bad for Bill. He's off on an adventure and like pursuing a career and his family has just abandoned him. And so I would like to bless anyone who is far away from their family this holiday season. And even I just find that In this new world that we're living in, no matter where I am, I'm missing a lot of people. Now that I have family here in Boston, when I'm in California, I miss my family and friends here. When I'm here, I miss my family and friends there. And that, for some reason, has just become a huge part of all of our reality. So I want to offer a blessing for anyone missing people this holiday season. Matt, next week we are doing chapter 13, and because it is the holiday time, I want to tell a story on the theme of community. So that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to tell it about the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text community.
2: Oh, I'm so grateful to be part of this community.
1: It's a great community. I can't wait to hear your story. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks this week. We are going to England. Colette Potts, Dana Schwartz, and I are going on a Frankenstein pilgrimage And we have a Tarot as a Sacred Practice class that will be starting in just a few weeks. You can still sign up now at NotSorryWorks.com and clicking on online classes. Also, we can't guarantee shipping will arrive by Christmas anymore, but we will try our best. If you are looking for a last-minute present for someone you love, go to NotSorryWorks.com and buy some of our wonderful merch. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong, and our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast.
2: Thanks this week to Justus, who sent us such an excellent voice memo. To Lara Glass, Julia Argi, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Tarkail, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of those who sent in the names of their lost loved ones. What you were you were sorry, you froze.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna leave and come back because I'm freezing so much.
2: Okay. Should I keep talking? She probably has to hear it, right?
1: (laughs) This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimald Place. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic.
3: Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?